This morning's passage comes from Malachi, one of the 12 minor prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, written about 200 years or so before the birth of Christ. It also marks the end of the Old Testament, the final words of the final chapter in its canonical order. It warns of impending catastrophe for the wicked, and while it offers a glimmer of hope in the return of the prophet Elijah, that's all it is, a glimmer, a distant hope. Like the rest of the prophets, Malachi has a bit of a grim worldview. That's a prophet's job, after all, to critique society's failings. But when you only focus on the world's problems, it has a way of getting into your head and warping your perspective. Maybe things aren't always as hopeless as they seem. A reading from Malachi. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that they will not come and strike the land with a curse. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I have an old newspaper here, uh, thanks to a member of this church who passed it along to me a few months ago. It's the Wheaton edition of the Sunday Journal, dated April 26, 1987. And it features a story on the front cover about the 125th anniversary of this church. On the front page, you can see there's, well, you sort of see, there's a beautiful uh, silhouette of Shirley Brown, uh, one of the sweetest women I've ever met, and one of our beloved and venerable elders who passed away not that long ago. Her profile is framed against the backdrop of our historic stained glass windows. The article itself is ostensibly supposed to be about uh, celebrating our church's history and our role in shaping the local community. But the author doesn't shy away from some of the more unpleasant details of the historical record. She goes out of her way uh, to mention that the move from our original location near Stacy's Tavern on Main Street was delayed by a bad case of food poisoning among the faithful. It seems like an odd detail to include, right? Um, 
in an article about uh, the church's anniversary. But then the, art, the article includes a lot of odd details. In a piece that is supposed to celebrate the church, there are several weird anecdotes that really undermine the celebratory tone. In writing the piece, uh, the author interviewed uh, Ruth LePage, who was confirmed here in 1905. And while Ruth shares some cheerful stories, they all seem to end badly. <laughs> Ruth recalls a tent revival that the church held over where the fire station is today. Her, fight, her face brightens at the memory, the article reads. Mr. Hoadley was converted at that meeting. He never went to church, but after that meeting he was so converted, he went regularly to church and they made him head usher. We were so happy to see him as an usher, Ruth recalls. But then, as the author notes, her smile fades. They decided to add more ushers, and they took away Mr. Hoadley's job. He lost his job and his interest, and he never came to church again. <laughs> Much like the food poisoning, I don't know why the author included this in the article, but it pales in comparison to the story about the cow. Now, many years ago, some young men decided to play a practical joke, and they used equipment from a local lumber yard to hoist a cow onto the roof of the church, leaving everyone to wonder how on earth it got there and how they were going to get it back down. It's a funny story. It's one I've heard many times before, but I never heard about how the story ended. Now, I'm quoting this from the article, okay? Ruth recalls that the same cow died a tragic death, the author of the piece writes. It seems the cow was owned by a widow who refused to marry a man who had a bad reputation in the village. In revenge, one night he took the cow and tied it to the railroad tracks. Really? Why is this in here? <laughs> At this point, you have to wonder why the author of this piece was right. Well, did she have it out for us? Was she a member at First Presbyterian? <laughs> Food poisoning, political infighting, cattle mutilation, happy anniversary, First Congregational Church. <laughs> a casual reader of the Sunday Journal in 1987 might be wondering just what kind of place this is anyway. But then I guess it's a matter of one's perspective and what you choose to focus on. The same could be said for our world today. What kind of place is this anyway? While there's surely a lot of good in the world, much like that article, we have a tendency to focus on the bad stuff. The divisive politics, the injustice, the poverty, the warming climate. When asked if they think the world is getting better, or worse, in a recent poll, only 6% of Americans believe that the world is improving. And yet, by most measurable criteria, the exact opposite is true. Extreme poverty has declined dramatically. The, the number of people living on less than $2 a day has declined by 
since 1987, when this article was written. Health outcomes have improved, with life expectancy increasing, especially in poorer countries. Child labor is down. Child mortality is down. Homicide rates and violent crime are down. Literacy is up. And apparently, people have been getting taller for centuries. <laughs> I could go on and on. Overall, most of us live much more comfortable lives today than people have throughout human history. And in most developing countries, people live better and longer than they did even 30 years ago. So as the bartender said to the horse, why the long face? In his book, Factfulness, public health researcher Hans Rosling tries to build a case for a negative bias, a case that argues that the world is much better than we think it is. The subtitle of the book is 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. He cites many of the examples that I've already listed here, and he believes that people's perceptions and predetermined assumptions color our reality. He encourages his readers to see the world as it actually is, to look at the facts instead of seeing the world as they perceive it to be. In some ways, though, Hans Rosling falls into his own trap. You know, while all of his research and findings are indeed factful, one could argue that he is simply choosing to focus on positive metrics instead of negative ones. He's insisting that the glass is half full, whereas those who focus on the negative can only see a glass half empty. One review of the book highlights this bias. Factfulness includes many graphs of bad things in decline and good things on the rise, the critic writes, but not a single graph of bad things on the rise. One graph depicts the reduction in oil spills at sea, but there's no graph on the accumulation of plastic debris in the oceans and its effects on birds and fish. There's a graph showing the decrease in hunger around the world, but no graph on the spread of obesity. Maybe this attempt to determine if the glass is half full or half empty is ultimately a pointless exercise. Is the world getting better? Sure is. Is the world getting worse? You bet. It all depends on your metrics and the lens that you're peering through. Maybe better or worse is just a matter of opinion. In the words of Zen Buddhist Charlotte Yoko Beck, when we take our opinions about any event to be some kind of absolute truth and fail to see that they are opinions, then we suffer. This is an especially important teaching, I think, in a society that is so riven by political discord. We have plenty of opinions about people we disagree with, people who see the world differently than we do. But what if we train that critical lens on ourselves? As Jesus famously said, take the log out of your own eye that you might see clearly enough to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye. And we ought to ask ourselves when forming opinions about anything of importance, are we seeing things clearly? 
Prophet Malachi attempts to define people as either righteous or wicked. A gross oversimplification, if there ever was one. A human being is an amalgam of experience and memory, nature and nurture, biological impulses and spiritual needs. A pile of secrets, most of them unknown even to ourselves. And all of these things color our perception of the world, of each other. They're the lenses that we see through. Malachi describes the coming day of the Lord as something that is once great and terrible, which I suppose depends on where you're standing when it arrives. The so-called day of the Lord, the day of God's reckoning, is really the prophet's commentary on world affairs in ancient Israel. Malachi uh, is preaching about what he perceives to be a society in decline. The Babylonians have laid waste to Jerusalem and exiled her people, but that was 400 years ago, Malachi. Since then, the Persians swept in and liberated them. They're part of Alexander the Great's empire now, but they have a lot of autonomy and religious freedom. Things are relatively good in the prophet's lifetime. But for Malachi, society is falling apart. He perceives that his people are abandoning their traditions and religious obligations. He thinks that the ancient Hebrews have grown complacent in their time of relative peace. And he's fixated on their wickedness instead of admitting that all around, all things considered, life is pretty good. Friends, for my part, I confess that I can be a bit like Malachi. I tend to see the glass as half empty. I'm one of the 94% of Americans who feel like the world is getting worse, if I'm being honest. But again, my perspective is colored by my conditions. I read too much news. In my professional life, I tend to be fixated on the injustice of the world, often neglecting its beauty. And as a man who struggles with depression and melancholy, the lenses that I gaze through are naturally darker. Why do you think I wear these bright yellow glasses? <laughs> these aren't winning me any fashion contests. Now, I'm not saying that everything is fine or even that the world really is getting better. I'm only saying that we seldom see it clearly. And I think that few of us do. There's an old Chinese parable about a farmer whose horse was stolen. Don't worry, this ends better than the cow story. <laughs> so his horse was stolen. Bad luck, his neighbors say. Good luck, bad luck, who knows, the farmer replies. A few days later, the stallion returns with an entire herd of wild horses. The neighbors say, very good luck. Bad luck, good luck, who knows, says the farmer. A week later, the farmer's son is trying to break in one of the horses, and he's thrown from the saddle and breaks his leg. The neighbors gather around him, lying on the ground, and they say, very bad luck. Bad luck, good luck, who knows, says the farmer. Sure enough, the very next day, the Chinese army comes to the town looking for able-bodied youth to fight in a local skirmish. When the soldiers 
come to the farmer's house and see that the boy's broken his leg, they leave him alone and move on. The neighbors say, very good luck. Bad luck, good luck, who knows, the wise farmer replies. It's all a matter of perspective. The farmer has enough sense to know that things aren't always what they seem at first glance. Sometimes a half-empty glass is really half-full. Certain Zen practitioners would tell you that there is no water and there is no glass. There is only you. There's a scene in the film The Matrix where the hero of the story encounters a young child who can bend a spoon telekinetically with his mind. How is that possible? He asks. Do not try and bend the spoon, the child replies. That's impossible. Instead, only realize the truth. There is no spoon. Then you will see that it is not the spoon that bends. It is yourself. For us, the world can only be what we envision it to be. If we think it's bad, it'll be bad, and it probably won't get any better. And we can't see things clearly, not until we identify our prejudices and assumptions, question our motivations, interrogate our intentions. And that, I believe, is what Jesus tried to help us do, to look within to be honest about what we see, and then to take another look at the world with fresh eyes. The, uh, the article about the church wouldn't be complete without some comments from the senior minister at that time, Reverend Lionel Miles. He reflects on all of the good that this church does for the community and all of the things that he hopes to see it accomplish. But the article ends somewhat abruptly as he muses on the challenges of leading this congregation. I think this church is not a uniform group of thinkers, he says, but more a collection of little enclaves, and I hope to minister to all without any being offended. Time's going to tell if I succeed. It's a very precarious way to fashion a ministry, he remarks somewhat ominously, and then the article ends. <laughs> I found myself turning through the pages, hoping that there was more, but that, that was it. It's a very precarious way to fashion a ministry. If you only focused on the negative things in our church's history, if you only focused on the negative things in the article, as I've done, you would see a flock suffering from food poisoning, a lot of political infighting, a cow tied to the railroad tracks, and a pastor who sounds like he wants to trade places with the cow. <laughs> but that is an awfully narrow perspective of this church that really does not do us justice. But that's how a lot of us, 94% of America apparently, tend to see the whole world. The glass half empty. Maybe there is no glass. Maybe there is no spoon. Maybe there is only us. And maybe the world can only be as good as we perceive it to be. Amen.